Let's open our Bibles to the book of Nehemiah for the first passage of Scripture as we consider the Gospel of John this morning. The book of Nehemiah, where we are specifically and clearly told about the manner of expository preaching, which is to preach consecutively through a passage of the Bible, taking it in its sentences and words and phrases. Nehemiah chapter 8 is the great preaching service of the Bible where we're given more details of a preaching service than anywhere else. Though we know that the Sermon on the Mount preached by the Lord Jesus Christ was one spectacular demonstration of truth and authority there in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Nehemiah chapter 8, and I'm going to avoid all the wonderful material around the 8th verse in order to focus on what it says. Nehemiah 8, 8, so they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. This is the manner of expository preaching. We read distinctly and give the sense, and hopefully we all arrive at the correct understanding that God has intended for us. Expository preaching is going to take us through every chapter, verse, sentence, phrase, and word of the Gospel of John. Many of you love it. Expository preaching, it gives you a specific point of reference for learning. Hearers can more easily remember what they heard and what they learned, and they can read ahead, they can read behind, they can review, because you know exactly where we are for a period of time, and that's going to be the Gospel of John. It helps us to learn the Bible, not just a subject from the Bible. Though, let's be very careful about ever exalting expository preaching too high, because Jesus and the apostles never preached expositorily. So for, for those that make an idol out of the manor, just remember that Jesus and Paul never used it. They were constantly topical preachers, pulling from here, pulling from there, here a little, there a little, here a little, there a little, and building a case for a particular topic or subject. But the word, the Lord gave us their words either declared by Jesus or written down by Paul. And sometimes we want to take one of those epistles as it would have been presented in a New Testament church. It would have been read in its entirety. And so we want to learn what an epistle has for us. We're going to trust the Lord in embarking on this project like we did when we studied the book of Hebrews in 1988 and the book of Romans a few years ago, Ecclesiastes a few years before that, and trust Him to lead us. He was very merciful to us in those projects. We want to trust Him for more. You know, while we call it expository preaching because we progress through a book from its first sentence to its last sentence, it brings up many topics by the Holy Spirit's design. So when you think about the Gospel of John, He is going to lead us into these topical considerations. And here's a sample list of His unique the unique sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the identity of Elijah the prophet, about wine, Christ as the good shepherd, the doctrine of election, 
Regeneration comes before conversion. Our Lord's intercessory prayer, the promise of the Holy Spirit, foot washing, the new birth, the resurrection of the dead, worship in spirit and truth, purging the temple, John the Baptist's ministry, recovery of Peter, heaven itself, the person of Scripture, honoring parents, dealing with seeker-sensitive types, and so forth. In the Gospel of John, we will have occasion for many topics to deal with. We want to know everything God has for His children in this unique Gospel, which is quite different from the other three. Eighty percent of the Gospel of John is not recorded in the other three. The other three repeat themselves numerous times with a number of events found in at least two and sometimes three of those Gospels, but John will just pass right over most of those events and give us 80% new material. And I know that some of you consider it your favorite book of the Bible, and I hope that the Lord will bless you for loving this book and what He shows us from it over the weeks to come. What attitude should we have? Every word of God is pure. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. We want to look at the epistle in its entirety and not miss anything that God the Holy Spirit inspired through the pen of the beloved disciple to give to Gentiles in the early church. We want everything that the Lord has for us. We don't want any extra. So that means we need to rightly divide the word of truth. We don't want to come short of all the truth that is in the Gospel of John, and we don't want to come up with things that are not there. It's a life-changing book. The Bible that you hold in your hands is a life-changing book. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 tells us this about the Bible. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because... When ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The word of God effectually works. It is a spiritual book. It is unlike any other book. It is not just to be comprehended or apprehended mentally. It feeds our spirit our inner man, by the blessing of the Holy Spirit. We have an unction given to us from God on the inside, and when we hear the Word of God preached to us, and it comes in through our audio nerves and our ears, the two mesh, and we are strengthened and increased and fed and nourished by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God working together, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ preached correctly, received eagerly, and blessed by the Spirit of God will change lives. And we want it to change our thinking. We want it to change our affections. We want it to change our conduct. You know, we have found in the Bible at least 21 one-word arguments telling us that every word of God is pure. We want to learn every word that he has for us in the Gospel of John. Can you be excited about one book for a while? One book? 
One chapter, one verse, and even one word at a time. Hebrews is a precious book. You've heard from me before that it is my favorite. And so is chapter 1, my favorite chapter of the book of Hebrews. And the first verse is an excellent verse. And the first word of that first verse of the first chapter of Hebrews is an excellent word. God. But after requiring my wife to listen to the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 last evening a few times, I said, who would like to vote on whether Hebrews chapter 1 is better than John 1 or John 1 is better than Hebrews 1? In the beginning was the Word. From an illiterate, from an uneducated, let me withdraw the illiterate, we're not told that extreme, from the uneducated and ignorant fisherman John of Galilee, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you continue reading, and they are some of the most profound statements ever made about God and men and their relationship. Some cannot comprehend any of His light, and others are totally transformed by it. And He is the revelation of God to men from a fisherman. Oh Lord, thank you. Some have favorite chapters in John, and... uh That may not change, but let's love all the chapters more than we might have before. We want to immerse ourselves in the book of John in comparison to others. We'll refer to others at times, and it'll be few, for cross-references, but we want to immerse ourselves in the Gospel of John. Slow down in your reading and take more time to meditate and exalt each individual phrase that God shows us. The value of Scripture is significant over creation to the conversion of our souls, as Psalm 19 teaches us. Scriptures given for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. In John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus Christ is going to be set forth in a different light than we get Him in the other Gospels. His deity and the fact that He was God in the flesh will be exalted at all times through this book. Our unique union with God through Jesus Christ and our union with Jesus Christ will be mentioned numerous times in this gospel. Let us reverently appreciate every chapter, verse, and word of the precious gold that God's given to us in this particular book of the Bible. Now, He's given us that blessing, those riches, and that sweetness in the whole Bible. But for right now, we want to focus on this gospel. Pray for your pastor. As he studies, prepares extensive outlines, and delivers many sermons from this gospel. I've been studying John now for 35 years. I can remember the first time that, and I've, you've heard about this before, when he shed light in my soul and mind about John chapter 5 and the spiritual resurrection there, which we call regeneration from other places that takes place in John 5 and how it lit me up. And since then, have been accumulating understanding of the Gospel so that we can fit it in with the rest of the New Testament like a hand in a glove and have it fit 
and understand its context and its purpose. And I want to help you with a lot of that this morning by giving you some background on the gospel and upon the writer and upon the reason why he had to write and the reason why he wrote the way he did. And I hope that it will bring meaning to some of the things that he emphasized. We need to depend on God for any correct understanding. That's why the first prayer this morning in this assembly was for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 2 tells us that we have an unction from the Holy One and we know all things concerning Jesus Christ. We do not need to be led astray by false teachers that are antichrist who are liars about Jesus Christ. We want to grasp all the Holy Spirit intended for us to have. I want to make it manifestly clear and simple. We want to avoid meats that have no profit, like exploring esoteric heresies that could easily take place between now and the end of March. If I wanted to preach to you about Gnosticism and the Ebionites and all the other heresies that were coming into being, the Nicolaitans, in the time of John, the writer of his gospel and his epistles. We're not going to do that. I made a choice a long time ago that I wasn't going to do that because Paul didn't do it and other Bible preachers don't do it. That is extraneous material that has no profit for the soul and leads men astray because it panders to the flesh rather than the spirit. I want to lift up the person of the Gospel of John and the person is not John. The person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He must increase John the Baptist, the Apostle John, and Jonathan Crosby must decrease, and so must you. We're going to preach it boldly and authoritatively like we should. We must exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in all of it. Controversy is the mother of orthodoxy. Necessity is the mother of invention. But controversy is the mother of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy being the truth. Controversy is the mother of truth because controversy forces men to define their positions more clearly than they ever had before, handling all objections against them. And so John is a writer in controversy, as I will show you, and as you should have picked up last night from reading in Second John and First John chapter 4. Expository preaching militates against proof texting. Instead of going into a book of the Bible like John and pulling out half of verse 37 from John chapter 6, we are forced to deal with all of John chapter 6 and see every clause in it. What is the second half of John 6:37? Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. That is how I learned John 6:37. That is how I got awards in Bible school summer vacation Bible school by memorizing verses like John 6.37. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. But what is John 6.37? All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Is there a difference? Praise be to God, He has shown us that difference And we want to rejoice in it. We don't want to do proof texting by pulling John 3.16 out of its context of a writer that uses the word world several times more frequently 
than the other gospel writers. We don't want sound bites. We don't want simple solutions. We want the truth. And so we'll seek it. It takes a lot of careful study to get the purpose and the context of the epistle down. You know, what could you do to help yourself during this series of messages? You could read one chapter of John a day to complete the whole book every three weeks. You could memorize one or more favorite verses from each chapter during the series. You could listen to the sermons again during the week from our MP3 postings. You have lots of opportunities. You can pray for your pastor to make it manifestly plain and for you to be able to grasp it completely. Learning from this epistle is going to vary widely over the whole congregation with the prepared and studious far outstripping the casual and neglectful. But none of us should be slothful. This is the word of God about his son. He chose John to deliver the most powerful statements about his son, Jesus Christ. Context. Let me take a number of minutes now to give you the context of the book of John. What is context? Remember six W words. Who, whom, why, what, when, and where. That's the context of any sentence in any language, in any writing. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? Why was it written? What was the matter and manner of its writing? When was it written and where was it written? And where was the audience? Those things help us to varying degrees as we look at books of the Bible. Let's start out with the writer. The who. Six questions we always ask when we look at anything in the Word of God to get its context. Because a text out of context is a pretext. Who, whom, why, what, when, and where. The who. Who wrote this book? The Apostle John wrote it. The son of Zebedee. One of the original twelve apostles and the younger brother of James. We read of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and John was the younger brother, his older brother being put first. And so we find the author there. He wrote five books of the New Testament. There's only 27 of them. He wrote 20% of the New Testament. When you look at chapters, 50 chapters out of the 260 chapters of the New Testament are by This man, the son of Zebedee, a fisherman by trade, a successful one at that. He had business partners and hired servants in it with his father. And Simon and Andrew were partners in this business with him. The business was successful enough to justify those hired servants. Jesus called him while he was fishing. And the Bible says they left their nets, they left their father, and they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to do that. His mother was Salome. The Bible tells us that. We know his father's name, Zebedee. We know his mother's name, Salome. Salome was one of the women that accompanied Jesus at times on his travels. She came to anoint his body. She was a close friend and supporter of the gospel. There is speculation, and sometimes I'm going to tell you that there is speculation and tradition that she was a half-sister of Jesus, but we have no basis for it except early traditions. However, she did, and she was close to the Lord Jesus, 
And her son John was close to the Lord Jesus. Very close. His closest apostle. So there could have been some family connection, but it doesn't matter. Because what we do know is that Salome had the courage and the confidence that she could come to Jesus and ask for a position on his left hand and his right hand for her two sons. We know that John was so close to him that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. And when they would eat supper, especially the Last Supper, he rested on the bosom, the chest of the Lord Jesus in the way that they ate in those days. Not sitting in individual chairs, perfectly upright like we do, but reclining at a table. John was in the inner circle of apostles that make up our New Testament Scriptures. Jesus chose twelve. They are enumerated and named several times throughout the Gospels and in Acts chapter 1. But John was in the inner circle of three. You know, David had three worthies, three mighty men, three captains that were above all of his mighty men. And the son of David had three that were above his apostles. These three were taken with him on special occasions like the Transfiguration early in his ministry. Earlier in his ministry, they were taken with him in the Garden of Gethsemane so they could accompany him in prayers before him going to the crucifixion. They were the ones taken in for the daughter of Jairus when she was raised from the dead. They were the ones assigned to go make ready the Passover to eat it with the Lord, the last Passover that He had desired to eat with them. Jesus warned about 70 A.D. in Matthew 24 and its corresponding accounts in the other Gospels to Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the four fishing partners. But John was one of the special three. It is sometimes hard for us to grasp because of false ideas that have been sold to us in the way of political correctness that it's wrong to have favorites. God's always had favorites. Jesus had favorites. John was one of his favorites. Peter, James, and John, three fishermen from the same fishing company, were his favorites. Andrew didn't make the cut, even though he was Peter's brother and a partner in that fishing business. John made the cut, and that's the point we want to make right now. Consider that on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ asked this writer to take care of his mother, to treat Mary, the mother of Jesus, as his own mother. And the Bible tells us he took her to his own house from then on. Tradition says that was 15 years before she died that John took care of the mother of Jesus. Now, out of those three, John was a special favorite of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was allowed to write about it. Do you know how politically incorrect that is? For John to write and repeat over and over that he was the apostle that Jesus loved. If Jesus loved you and had a special relationship with you, wouldn't you want to talk about it? And it's perfectly normal to want to talk about it. And God the Holy Spirit not only allowed it, but inspired it and preserved those words. David could say, out of the whole nation of Israel and its twelve tribes, God chose Judah. 
out of all the families that were in Judah, God chose the, the family of Jesse. Out of all the sons of Jesse, and there were eight, God chose me because He liked me. And that's in the Word of God. Now, instead of being resentful that God would have a favorite over others, why not embrace it and choose to be His favorite? There must be compatibility between Jesus and John for John to be Jesus' favorite. It wasn't a willy-nilly selection because that is contrary to the Word of God. I have written you recently in an update that David had special friends. And he tells us on what basis he chose them. And that was their righteousness and their fear of God and their love of the law of God. Titus tells us that ministers should be lovers of good men. So these things tell us that there's a reason and a basis behind it. And after a couple of minor failures in John's life, we don't read any more of them. You know, we can read of a more impulsive member of the triumvirate who, though corrected, continued in the same course to make other mistakes like it. But I will remind you that Peter has two epistles named after him that he wrote and penned in First and Second Peter. David showed this priority and the Lord Jesus Christ does it. We may judiciously, carefully wonder what compatibility that John had with Jesus Christ, but there was a very tender affection there, and he was singled out. It doesn't matter from whose pen the words come from. They were the words of the Holy Spirit that John was the beloved disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, Jesus loved all 11 of his disciples, but the son of perdition, but he loved John differently. And we should we know that, because it tells us that in the Gospel of John repeatedly. Boy, Jesus had in his 12 every, every kind of an apostle running from John to Judas. Can you imagine what our Lord dealt with for three and a half years? Every time he looked at the face of Judas, every time he heard Judas pray, Paul had the same situation with the churches that he pastored, and so does every pastor. But what, what an extreme range from John, James and Peter, all the way down to Judas Iscariot, that our Lord Jesus Christ had. You know, Jesus knows how to identify men very quickly. He had discernment of spirits, if you want to even call it a gift. He was God in the flesh. But when he saw Nathanael, he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. That is an honest and a sincere child of God, a real Israelite. As soon as he, as soon as he met Nathanael, he would say things like that. So our Lord Jesus Christ had a very insightful, incisive ability to identify a man's character and to love him accordingly and to say it. You know, what a, what a demonstration of parental honor is for Jesus on the cross to tell John to take care of his mother and for his mother to consider John as her son and then for John to do it, not for the rest of the week. Not for a month. It says he took her to his home, and that was it. We're thankful for these little things that we find in the Gospel of John. Some call John the Apostle of Love. 
But you better define that title to be right. What do you mean when you say that John is the apostle of love? Look at Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Now, when most people say that John is the apostle of love, they're trying to say that he was different than Paul, that he was a gentle sort. He was a kind sort. He was, he was fluffier and cuddlier than Paul. Paul was just brutally logical. All Paul cared about was the truth. And all John cared about was love. Wrong, wrong, wrong. No gospel writer even comes close to the Apostle John in his strictness and severity about the true doctrinal identity of Jesus Christ and holding truth fast. No one. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are you kidding me? All they were were historians writing a narrative of the events of Jesus' life. John attacks with the truth all error, calling them antichrists, calling them liars, and saying, if you don't believe it the way I teach it, you don't have the Father or the Son. He was ferocious that way and perfectly righteous in so doing because so was His Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 3 and verse 17 tells us what Jesus said when He met James and John. Mark 3 verse 17, And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, and he surnamed them Boanerges, which is the sons of thunder. So whenever you met John, Hello, my name is Jonathan Crosby. What's your name? John Boanerges. John, the son of thunder. James, the son of thunder. Jesus, right off the bat, names them. You know, Peter got named Cephas, a stone. John was named Boanerges, a son of thunder. So I have been perplexed for decades why people want to call John the apostle of love. I wish they would just define what they mean by that. Now, if you mean that John teaches brotherly love, John teaches brotherly love more than any other writer in the Bible, I will say great definition and explanation as to why you call him the apostle of love. If you want to call him the apostle of love because Jesus loved him, okay, it's a twisted way of saying it, but I'll accept that one. But don't try to tell me that the Apostle John was some gentle pushover that emphasized love over truth, because that is not true. He was a son of thunder, Boanerges, and his name was borne out by his life. Look at Luke chapter 9. If you read 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, where he names a man, the Apostle John Hates error, loves the truth, condemns heretics, is very confident about his observational powers at the crucifixion and what he wrote down about the crucifixion. He writes just like the Apostle Paul wrote that if a man, any other man, or if an angel from heaven, or if we ourselves 
preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. John is going to use language similar to that. In 1 John 4 and verse 6, in John chapter 20 and 21, John chapter 18, he sees things at the crucifixion. And John 19, that he records that fulfills prophecy, and he says, and you know that the one writing always writes the truth. I mean, that's just confidence. Don't tell me he was some wishy-washy, milk-toast, compromising, effeminate apostle of love. Define what you mean by those words. I'm going to define what they mean. If, if you're going to use the expression, since it's not a Bible expression, he taught brotherly love more than anyone else. He called the commandment, which we have heard from the beginning, that it's a new commandment, yet it's an old commandment. And in both his gospel and in his epistle of 1 John and 2 John, he did emphasize that. But boy, he loved the truth. And do you know why he loved the elect lady in 2 John? Because she and her children loved the truth. Truth was the measure of love for John. It was love of the brethren. It was love of the brethren. Luke chapter 9. Let's find out if Jesus was right by naming him a son of thunder. That's not very kind to meet a man when he could, when he said of Nathaniel, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. Then he meets James and John, sons of thunder. And by the way, we have a Boanerges coming to see us soon. I like his surname that he's given himself. Abwama Boanerges. We greet you and salute you with love. You can thunder among us all you want. We love thunder and lightning. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and it came to pass. Luke 9, 51, and it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them, And said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So there's an event in the life of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, as to why Jesus called them the sons of thunder. They wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn up, consume a village of the Samaritans, because the Samaritans did not bring out their pep have a pep rally, and bring out their band to welcome Jesus to their village. And it tells us why they didn't. Because Jesus was intent on going to Jerusalem, and he was only looking at that village of the Samaritans as a temporary layover. But there go James and John, the sons of thunder. So be careful when you try to say words like the apostle of love. Yes, He taught brotherly love and emphasized it more than others, and it was an emphasis of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but you sure do in the Gospel of John, and in 1 John, and in 2 John, and in 3 John. 
John was severe against apostates. Just give me a few minutes. Calling them liars and antichrists. And he writes his God. He doesn't waste any time when he opens up an epistle or he opens up his gospel. He goes right after them with the first sentence. I'll show you in a moment. John stayed in Jerusalem for some time after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and after the day of Pentecost. He was responsible for Mary. He was with the eleven in Jerusalem waiting for the Spirit in Acts chapter 1 where he's in the list of names there. He and Peter went up to pray and healed the lame man and opposed the Jews. It was Peter and John. But John had learned to be a little bit more reticent. With Peter you didn't have to be very reticent because Peter was going to speak first anyway. And so whenever you find the two of them together, it's Peter doing most of the talking. When you, when you find them in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, when you come to the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, Peter speaks because Peter has an event under his belt that John didn't have, and that was preaching to the household of Cornelius. But it was both John and Peter that went down to Samaria from the altitude of Jerusalem because Philip had preached there, but they hadn't received the Holy Ghost upon their baptisms. So it was John and Peter that went down there, laid hands on them, and prayed for them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Herod Agrippa I killed James the son of Zebedee, the oldest son of thunder, in Acts chapter 12. The pillars in the Jerusalem church, according to Paul, in Galatians chapter 2, were James, the Lord's brother, and John, and Peter. Tradition tells us that John left Judea before 70 AD and lived in Asia Minor. He would have known very well the warning of the Lord to escape from Jerusalem when the armies were coming of the Romans to destroy that city. Now tradition, I just mentioned there briefly that he went to Asia Minor, but we don't need tradition for that. We know he was in Asia Minor. How do we know he was in Asia Minor? Because he was banished to the Isle of Patmos off the coast of modern-day Turkey where was the city of Ephesus. And he was the one that wrote a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ to the seven churches of Asia that are in a very tiny little area of modern-day Turkey at its western coast next to the Aegean Sea in which was the little Isle of Patmos. So we know that there was some connection there. And all of early church history says that John resided for the latter part of his life in Ephesus and took care of those churches, that he founded those other six churches. We know who founded the church at Ephesus. Paul did, because Acts chapters 19 and 20 tell us that. But he was banished to the Isle of Patmos. It's Fox's Book of Martyrs that tells us that he was once taken to Rome as a captive, thrown into a boiling cauldron of oil to put him to death, and he survived it. And then was banished back to the, back to the Isle of Patmos. That's in Fox's Book of Martyr. Whether it's true or not, we don't know. Is God capable of doing that? Easily. Had he already made a distinction between the death of Peter and the death of John in the latter part of John, the Gospel? Yes, he did. According to, to tradition, Fox's Book of Martyr, Eusebius, and other early church historians, John's the only apostle to die a peaceful death, though he did spend some of his life on the Isle of Patmos, banished there. He lived the longest by tradition. You know, he was young in order to have lived as long as he did. The lofty content of the book, penned by a fisherman. 
penned by a fisherman. When this fisherman and his partner Peter opened their mouths in Acts chapters 3 and 4, the crowd that were listening immediately said, these are unlearned and ignorant men. You know, they started their fishing careers after the third grade or the sixth grade or something like that, and they were unlearned and ignorant. But they knew that they had been with Jesus because of the way they spoke. And we want to remember that. It, to, to think of the lofty language used by John as an unlearned and ignorant fisherman is just one of the statements of the inspiration of God through his pen. We're going to see some of the most sublime, majestic, and beautiful expressions and turn of phrase about the spiritual glory of Jesus Christ that cannot be matched elsewhere. The spiritual glory of the deity and unity of Jesus Christ with His Father, unprecedented. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't write like that at all. In comparison, we're talking about the writer at the moment. John, son of Zebedee, son of thunder, the beloved apostle, laid on Jesus' bosom at the Last Supper. John was confident. Look at John chapter 18. I hope that you understand that the apostles that the Lord Jesus Christ gave the world turned the world upside down, and they were wonderful men. Simple in their education, but who needs education when God's revealing things to you by the Holy Spirit? John chapters 14 through 16, a large part of those chapters are must be limited. Some of those chapters must be limited to the apostles where Jesus said, The Spirit of truth I will give you, and He will bring everything to your remembrance that I have spoken to you. Well, Jesus has never spoken anything to you. So what's He going to bring to your remembrance? Those were apostolic statements. And they had the Holy Spirit. And they did remember. After Acts chapter 2 in the first verse, they remembered right well. They could pen inspired epistles. They could stand and preach. Look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, after the Holy Spirit came upon him. And that's the Spirit we want in your pastor and in each of you, so that we can profit from the Word of God. You're in John 18, and I want to show you the confidence of this writer. John 18, and it's chapter 19. John chapter 19. Verse 31 tells us that the Jews wanted the bodies taken off the cross, because a high Sabbath day was rapidly approaching because it was late in the afternoon. Verse 32, Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first, that is, first thief, and of the other which was crucified with him. Verse 33, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. Now watch verse 35. And he that saw it, bear record. And his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. Who is that? He's speaking about himself. That's the Apostle John. And he that saw it, bear record. And his record is true. I don't care what anyone else tells you. I'm telling you the truth about what happened with Jesus. They pierced his side, and they did not break a bone. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the Scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. 
And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Those were two prophecies that needed to be fulfilled. And John was an eyewitness of the fulfillment of those two prophecies. And he said, when I observe something, I tell you the truth. I saw with my own eyes because I want you to believe the truth. He was confident. So get rid of this cotton candy, milk toast, mealy mouthed idea of the apostle of love that so many people have. I love that confidence. Look at John chapter 21, verse 24. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things. John 21, 24. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. That's a confident preacher. A confident apostle. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. Amen. John wasn't perfect. He came to Jesus, and with his mother, he asked, James asked, if they could have two thrones, one on each side of Jesus. And Jesus said, you don't even know what you're asking for. And he corrected them there. They wanted to burn up the village of the Samaritans, and Jesus corrected their spirit there. John wasn't perfect. And I'm I'm glad that the Bible records these things about him. And I want to share this with you. True to his person and true to his doctrine, Jesus Christ forgave and loved John anyway. Just like God loved David anyway. And the list of sins of David recorded in the Bible is long. Hopefully I will not run any rabbits right now. But in this day that we live, due to social media and everybody thinking that they're an authority on everyone else, if they can dig up the least little event in someone's past, they will totally disregard a life of virtuous, noble, classy conduct to bring up some stupid, minor, inconsequential event from their past. It makes me sick. And I'm not going to mention any names, though some may be going through your head. It is a common event nowadays because anyone can tweet, anyone can text, anyone can blog, and it's too bad that the only information in the world wasn't in books, and it took about a million to produce a book. Then it would cut out all the rabble, and all the children, and all the infants, and all the wicked, malicious men who will attack a man for some little, single, solitary event in their past and overlook thousands and thousands and thousands of days of virtuous conduct. I love the Bible. God loved David, though he listed those things. God forgave him freely. Jesus Christ forgave Peter freely and let him write two of his epistles. One of the eight writers of the New Testament. Jesus forgave John. And I love that about the Bible. It tells us those two events about John, but it tells us the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
That should comfort anyone that's discomforted by thinking about your past. And for others that might try to make you think about your past, measure your overall life. Does it stand up to God's word? And have you repented about your past? Obviously, John repented. Obviously, Peter repented. Clearly, David repented. And God bless them. That's why it's called the R factor. And it's glorious. And it's all purchased at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by the shed blood of the righteous one. For us unrighteous fools, May the Lord bless us to remember that. The audience, we're to the whom. Remember, there's six questions to ask. Who, whom, why, what, when, and where. The whom, the object of John's writing, his audience. You know, it can be important sometimes. It's very important to us in the epistle to the Hebrews. Very important that we know that audience. It entirely changes your perspective on that book when you get a grip on the fact that Paul was writing to Judean Jews before 70 A.D. Changes our interpretation. This doesn't change our interpretation much, but we believe that John wrote to a Gentile audience. Shouldn't surprise us. Where was he at the end of his life? Across the Mediterranean Sea on the Isle of Patmos, writing a letter to seven Gentile churches. He wasn't writing churches in Judea. He was writing the seven churches of Asia, Asia being a Roman province of what would today be called Western Turkey. We do know that he had some connection to those seven churches. We know that he was banished to the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean Sea. He may have had a very extensive connection to those seven churches, like church history tells us he did. When he wrote the Gospel of John, he explained words and customs that the Jews would have already known and wouldn't have needed any explanation. Look at John chapter 1 with me just briefly. Just very briefly, I mean, some of these are so obvious that he must have been writing an audience that needed a little bit of help. And, you know, we benefit from that help on occasion because we're not Jews. John chapter 1 and verse 41. He first, John 1, 41. This is Andrew. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah's which is, being interpreted, the Christ. If John were writing a Jewish church, why in the world would he explain the word Messiah? If there was one word the Jews knew, it was the word Messiah. But Gentiles would have needed help with that word. And so now we know that the word Messiah means Christ, and Christ means Messiah, the anointed one of God that was to come. Because of, And there's, there's others like that. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda. Well, they would have all known that, what the pool was called that was at the sheep market. And so there are places like that. John referred to the Jews 65 times, describing the division caused among them for this Gentile audience, Judean churches in Judea, or Jewish churches would have known about that division caused by Jesus Christ. But John continues to repeat it. Okay, let's get to the purpose of why he wrote this epistle. Look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5, it doesn't matter where we start, 1 John 5, 13 or John 20 and verse 31, they both teach the same thing. 
and we will establish that beyond any refu- honest refutation before we finish. 1 John 5.13, I'm starting here because we used it recently and because many of you told me that the verse meant a great deal to you. 1 John 5.13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That is why John wrote, We don't have to guess or wonder. He wrote to confirm believers that they already possessed eternal life and to encourage them to believe even more on the Son of God. We want to believe on the Son of God as John defines and identifies Him. Because if we vary from that, there is no hope of eternal life. By evidence that you have, unless it's the the Son of God, and Jesus the Christ that he described. Look at John chapter 20 and verse 31. It's worded very similarly, though a little tiny bit differently. John chapter 20. It's nice when an apostle tells us why he wrote in general. Verse 30 of John chapter 20, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. John only recorded eight miracles, and that is stretching it. That's calling him walking on the water in John chapter 6, which is not a a big deal. It's not made of it in John chapter 6 at all, as one of the eight. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record numerous miracles. They record many blind men. We get one blind man in John. They record many lame. We get one man lame at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And so he, John knows that he didn't record very many miracles. And so he says, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. They're written in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But these are written. And if, when we get to the context of these miracles, he uses each miracle to further this goal. These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing he might have life through his name. That is not to get life. That's not to obtain life. That is to have the evidence of life because to have life means to be in possession of life. How do you know that you're in possession of eternal life? By believing on the Son of God. Just like he wrote in 1 John 5.13. Now I don't have time right now to, to tell you that John in 1 John 5.13 was not opposing himself in John 20, in verse 31, and teaching an entirely contrary and different gospel. If you think John 20, 31 means that you have to get John's gospel to someone in order for them to be born again and to get eternal life, then you're setting him up to oppose himself from 1 John 5, 13, 1 John 5, 1, and the rest of 1 John that says, faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the evidence of eternal life. Much more will be said on this as we proceed. Back to 1 John. John clearly teaches in both his gospel and his epistle that regeneration has to take place before believing. That eternal life must exist before faith. Much could be said right now, but we will get to that in time. 
Let's think about the early church and what they faced. What does the New Testament tell us? The New Testament tells us that there were many that corrupted the Word of God. Second Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17. Look with me at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, just very quickly. There was a tidal wave of heretics and error against the apostles. Paul was struggling and fighting with Jewish legalists throughout his ministry. So much time he spends in Romans, the entirety of the book of Galatians, opposing Jewish legalists. Some of the time here in Colossians and some of the epistle to the Philippians was to combat Jews that claimed Christianity but required converted Gentiles to keep the law of Moses. Colossians 2. I'm going to read a number of verses beginning at verse 1. Follow along with me. This is, this is the scene. This is the setting for the New Testament being written. And John is going to refer to heretics that do not have the correct doctrine of Christ. And he is going to call them antichrists. He is the only one in the Bible that uses that expression. There is no antichrist in the book of Revelation. There is no antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. There is the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians 2. And there is the beast and the false prophet and so forth in the book of Revelation. But the word antichrist and the plural of it, antichrist, is only found in First and Second John. But let's get the situation. Verse 1, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea. That is one of the seven churches of Asia around the city of Ephesus. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. Paul is praying for the riches of assurance of understanding about God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, because there were a lot of men trying to do so. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware! lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Can you understand from the reading, without me taking the time to dissect this by phrase, that one of the threats of the philosophy was that Jesus was not fully divine. That's why he concludes in verse 9, for in Jesus Christ dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Paul warned in 2 Corinthians about another Jesus. John, from Jesus, warned 
the churches of Asia about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now come to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. As John tells us a little bit about what was going on. In the book of Revelation chapter 12 when it describes that the church brought forth a man-child. Was there another was there another being in the universe that tried to devour and destroy that man-child? The Lord Jesus Christ had an enemy. And when that enemy couldn't destroy the Lord Jesus Christ, but was vanquished by him at the cross of Calvary, that enemy sent forth a flood of false doctrine to destroy the children of God that believed on Jesus Christ. And they attacked the identity and person and offices of the Lord Jesus. Here we go. 1 John 2.18 Little children, it is the last time. The last dispensation. They were already in it then. It is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. This is why any heresy comes up in the church. There must be heresies among you. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. God is constantly sifting His church by heresies to see who will hold apostolic doctrine fast and not move from it. Verse 22, Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son... The same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Chapter 4 and verse 3. Every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Second John. Verse 7, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Paul described the man of sin being the popes of Rome as something that would develop over time and was yet way out in the future. Jesus said that there would be men that would say that they themselves were Christ before the destruction of Jerusalem. John is not teaching either point. John is teaching those that would corrupt the true doctrine of Jesus Christ by denying that Jesus was the Christ, by denying that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh, and the things contained and implied in those two points of doctrine. Note that John said many antichrists had gone out from them. His test of an antichrist was simply put, has Jesus Christ... Come in the flesh. You think, well, of course I believe that. That's the first thing I ever believed. Yes, it is simple to you, but you do not understand the onslaught of false doctrine. And even today, you do not understand the errors that are out there, though you do understand some, like the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ that makes Him less than God 
the Word. It makes Him a begotten God. And the Unitarians and the confusion that they create around the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His test of Antichrist was simple. Has Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Without ruining your focus or wasting time, let me tell you about a few of the early heretics. They've been listed and cataloged by others. Serenthus, first or century second Gnostic. A Gnostic is someone who worships learning, knowledge, gnosis. Denying the deity of Jesus, they held that Christ was separate from Jesus, that Christ, the God part of Jesus, entered him at his baptism and left him on the cross. They followed the Jewish law. Serenthus, Gnosticism itself, belief that the material world is evil. That God would not demean Himself to come down and join Himself to a physical body because anything physical and material is evil because it's of a lower level than the spiritual. This is their concept of spiritual. Gnosticism. The spiritual world is good. The material world is evil. Spiritual knowledge or their gnosis could be gained for their own salvation. Ebionites believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but not divine. He wasn't God. They required continuation of the Jewish laws and rituals, and they counted Paul an apostate. Oh yes, he was an apostate from their idea of worshiping God. The Apostle Paul himself said, After the way which they call heresy, so worship by the God of my Father. I love being called a heretic by you folks, is what he was saying. Docetism. Teaching that the body of Jesus was merely a ghost or phantom. He was too divine to be cumbered with a physical body. And the Christ came and left him. Baptism and crucifixion. Now you just read a little bit about them or just listen to what I just told you about first and second century enemies of Jesus Christ and then read first John and John chapter one. They denied our Lord's person, his incarnation and his office in various evil ways. John had one issue. Jesus Christ, did he come in the flesh? You know, Paul had warned. Paul had warned that men would arise from yourselves and go astray teaching false things to get people to come after them. What church did he give that warning to? It's in Acts chapter 20 to the church at Ephesus. Paul's severe warning about men coming out from among them that would teach false doctrine. And there's John saying, many have gone out from us to prove that they were never really truly part of us. The test of Antichrist, I'm saying this repeatedly, the test of Antichrist to John was, has Jesus Christ come in the flesh? That question raises four critical issues. Is Jesus of Nazareth the Christ, the Messiah of God? John put it that way in 1 John 2. Is Jesus the Christ? When he says, is Jesus Christ come in the flesh, by combining the two words, Jesus' personal name, Jesus, and his title, Christ or Messiah, by combining them, he is saying Jesus is the Christ. And then he's extending it by saying, is, has Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Did he have a real human body? 
or was it a figment of men's imaginations? Was it a ghost? Was it a phantom? Because God could not be joined to something material like a flesh and bone and blood body. These are the enemies of the gospel in the first and second century. Are you with me? This this makes these two books very exciting for you to see the apostle of love and how gently he starts these two books. Don't look there yet. They are denying that Jesus is God. They are denying that Jesus is the Christ. They are denying that Jesus Christ truly had a real material body. Look at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Do you believe on Jesus Christ? You know, we we don't want to make that question simpler than it should be, and we don't want to make it more complicated than it should be. But John gets pretty specific. Is Jesus the Christ, and is Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Is Jesus Christ God? If he's the Christ, then he's the mighty God, the everlasting Father. And we could take a whole lot of time to develop it more, but we don't need to. Look at 1 John 1, 1 and see if all four critical issues are answered. Let me give them to you again. Is Jesus of Nazareth the Christ, the Messiah of God? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God, and how? Did Jesus Christ have a real, material human body? Is Jesus God? Let's see. Look at how he starts his epistle. That which was from the beginning. How far back does that take you? To eternity. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. If I can't touch it, I won't believe it. Our hands have handled of the word of life. He calls him the word of God, just like he does in his gospel, except here he uses the expression, the word of life. He is talking about a living person that he touched, looked at, saw, and heard. In parentheses, for the life was manifested. What life? The life of God. God himself, the word, was manifested. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, a person which was with the Father, the same was in the beginning with God, and was manifested unto us. The Word was made flesh. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. I have written this epistle that I can have fellowship with anyone that will believe what I've just told you. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. All these things are wrapped up in one powerful sentence starting this epistle. We touched Him. We looked at Him. We observed Him. He was manifest to us. It was the eternal life of God Himself. The deity of God was manifest to us. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Christ. Because he says, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And what is the Son of God? The eternal life of God himself being manifest in flesh that you can grab, squeeze, touch, and look at. This is what we believe. 
Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the anointed Messiah of God. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God by His perfect incarnation and manifestation through the baby that was born to Mary. Jesus Christ came in the flesh with a real body that suffered death and rose again and was glorified in heaven and is there at this very hour. If Jesus only had a phantom body and you and I have real bodies, then He's not the first fruits of them that slept. The gospel falls apart if we start breaking down the four strict issues from the question, is Jesus Christ come in the flesh? But do you understand that there were men preaching against John, preaching against Paul. There were many antichrists denying the Father, denying the Son, denying the proper relationship between the two, denying that Jesus was God, denying He was the Christ, denying He had a real human body. And how does John take care of it? One sentence to open his epistle. Now tell me about him being the apostle of love. What he loved was truth. Who he loved was his Savior. And anyone that would subscribe and sign their name to this confession of faith, you can have fellowship with me. If you don't believe in everything I've said right here, that he had a body that I could handle, I can't have fellowship with you. This is the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the Apostle Paul. He didn't wait around, beat around, or wait to the fifth chapter to get to the point. Look at how he started his epistle. With one sentence... He takes care of all four critical issues from the question, is Jesus Christ come in the flesh? I handled them. Yeah, I would say that's kind of fleshly. I won't believe it until I can see it. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Thank you, Lord. What a Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Oh, let's always defend Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God, with His human body and nature that He had while He was in this world, and now it's glorified in heaven. Look at how He starts. In the beginning was the Word, the Word of life, of First John 1.1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God called that eternal life in 1 John chapter 1. There's only one life that is eternal. It's divine. He inhabits eternity. He is from everlasting to everlasting. Everything else is created and has a beginning. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Everything else has a beginning except Him. He just was in the beginning, and He was God, and He was with God, because He was the Word of God, just as First John teaches. Verse 14, And the Word, the Word of life of First John 1, the Word, that eternal life that was with the Father, was made flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. We saw Him. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Until the Word of God had a flesh body and a human nature, He couldn't be seen. He couldn't fulfill this verse. The Word was made flesh until He had a human body. We do not have Jesus Christ come in the flesh. But once verse 14 happened, we do. We have God manifest in the flesh. Isn't that the first point of the great mystery of godliness? 
1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh. Verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time. That's interesting. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. You've been able to see Him. You've been able to hear Him. You've been able to touch Him. Because it's God made flesh that is the Son of God, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In this first chapter, look at verse 41. We've already used it once. This is Andrew running to find Peter after having John tell him, John the Baptist tell him, Jesus is the Lamb of God. So Andrew goes to get Peter, and he says in verse 41, He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is, being interpreted, the Christ, and he brought him to, he brought him to Jesus. So Jesus is the Christ. John just gets right to work, doesn't he? He does not beat around the bush or waste time. He gets right to it, identifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. He records something that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't in John chapter 8. When they questioned Jesus about him comparing himself to Abraham, they said, you're not even 50 years old. How in the world could you be before Abraham? And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Ooh, that was, I am. That eternal life. In my divine nature, I'm the word of God. I'm the word of life. I am the eternal life that was with the Father. In John chapter 14, he comes into a room where the disciples are gathered together. It's not John 14. He comes into a room where the disciples... Sorry, that's just me talking to myself. He comes into a room where the disciples are gathered together after the resurrection. And Thomas has been saying, I won't believe until I can, you know, do this. Jesus appears in the room and says... uh, Let's go for it, Thomas. A spirit doesn't have flesh and blood like this. Go ahead. Put your finger in there. Do you know what John's doing? Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't do it like this. John is crushing all those heretics of his generation that confused and questioned and attacked the person and the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is his personal name. That name is Joshua in Hebrew. Mary never called a boy Jesus. She called her boy Joshua or Yeshua. That was his name. There were lots of boys in Israel with the name of Joshua. So how did you identify one Joshua from another? By identifying his place of origin. Like Goliath of Gath. Jesus of Nazareth. That is his personal name that tells you who we're talking about. His legal parents were Joseph and Mary. We know his brothers and his sisters. We have his birth certificate on record. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. Christ is the anointed one of God. The New Testament Greek word for the Old Testament word Messiah. The Messiah is God's son that he was going to send into this world. The Prince of Peace. The Mighty God. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. So he fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies. And Jesus Christ, when we put the two together, we're saying Jesus is the Christ by combining those two things. We're taking the name of a man of Galilee named Jesus of Nazareth and combining it with his title Christ. So we say Jesus Christ. And because we worship him, we call him the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He came in the flesh because he had a real material body. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. Colossians 2.9, which I read to you. What did Thomas say after Jesus did that? Thank you, brother. My Lord and my God. Yes, that's perfect, isn't it? My Lord and my God. The Lord, capitals, said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. Brethren, we are traditionalists. We hold to the tradition of the apostles. We love tradition. We love apostolic tradition. When we go into that first epistle of John, we can see certain enemies, and they're identified at confusing and questioning the personal identity of Jesus Christ. Whether he came in the flesh, whether he had a real material body, whether he was the Christ, whether he was God or not, they attacked and questioned all these things. Jehovah's Witnesses do it today. The eternal sonship doctrine turns him into a begotten God. John 1.18 in the New American Standard Bible says that Jesus is a begotten God. Our God is not begotten at all because he is the eternal life. Amen. From 1 John chapter 1. I'm sorry if this, if this may have led you astray, but do you want to know what John's writing about when he starts out by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh, and no man has seen God at any time, but we have seen His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you know where all that's coming from. And it's in perfect agreement with First John chapter 1, John chapter 1, and it explains who the Antichrists were, that were John's enemies and the liars that were out there confusing the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in this church, we will tenaciously, carefully, strictly, severely guard, love, promote, teach, and defend this precise truth about Jesus of Nazareth as it is taught in the Bible. And we're going to learn 21 chapters about him as we go through the Gospel of John. And this apostle lays out that he is God in the flesh, the Christ. Try to find that word elsewhere. The Messiah. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Add your blessing to the preaching of your word.